Bringing you around the world right from your desktop. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. Today the show is The World According to Dr. Carol. I'm going to be putting news and events uh, on my couch today and doing one of my (laughs) infamous rants. I've been storing up a number of things to rant about, so uh, get ready. The first thing that I wanted to talk about is Masawi. Lest you think that this is old news, uh, he is in the news again today. He was sentenced, as you probably know, last week to life in prison without parole. And uh, he's back in the news. See, this is what happens. Fame is addicting. And, um, you know, he got a lot of it during his trial, and he, a lot more than the 15 minutes, and he wants more. So today he had his attorneys put in a motion to appeal um, the the first trial on the grounds that he wants a new trial, on the grounds that he um, wants to plead not guilty this time. He wants to retract his guilty plea and start again. Um, I don't know whether, you know, it's like a do-over is really what he wants. And this is, uh, according to federal law, once a defendant uh, has already pled guilty, he can't go back after the verdict has been, um, after the sentencing, he can't go back and, and um, say that he wants a do-over. But Masawi wants um, to have this second chance, not only to keep being in the public eye so that he can rant <laughs> um, about, you know, various things that he believes, um, but he uh, he's been impacted by the fact that he didn't get uh, a death sentence. And let's look at first of all why the jurors uh, gave him life without the possibility of parole instead of a death sentence. Here are some of some of my thoughts on that. And remember, for for those of you who um, have not heard me talk about forensic psychiatry issues before, that's one of the hats that I wear. So. Um, I testify in court as an expert witness and do consultations, so I'm uh, very much involved and interested in the kinds of thinking that goes on in juries' minds. So aside from the fact that um, it does seem that the prosecution didn't really put on uh, a case that proved that he deserved to um, get life, uh, I'm sorry, to get executed, um, you know, they just didn't prove their case well enough, I think, that he had direct involvement in the September 11th attacks. And um, I, I actually have sort of a, an ambivalent feeling towards what he should have gotten, but, um, but I can certainly see that it was fair what the jury decided because, because it seemed like, uh, even, it, it seemed like 
This was the one person that was in custody that the United States government could blame for all of 9-11, and it just seemed a little unrealistic. I mean, he didn't seem like the prime target who should take the fall for that. Um, what is sad, what, what, what does bother me about the, the verdict, though, the sentence, um, is that, uh, the, all the people, the survivors, the, the family members of people who died in 9-11, who came and gave such emotional testimony, um, telling their stories, and you could hear that it was just as raw and real as, as it had been, you know, all these years ago. It still almost, it sounded almost the same as, as when they first felt the pain of losing their relatives. And, you know, it must have been really, really devastating for them um, to, at least some of them, to um, to have gone through all of that, particularly the ones who actually testified, um, who, to have gone through all of that and then still not have gotten the result that they perhaps wanted. But um, I think that what else went into the decision for, for some of the jurors uh, some of them may well have been afraid of revenge, either afraid of revenge on America if we, um, if they voted to execute him, um, because you know this would have probably um, made some. I mean, a lot of people would have seized upon this. A lot of terrorists would have seized upon this as another example of. America just being bloodthirsty and wanting to uh, kill one of them. I think some of the jurors, jur- jurors were also uh, fearful of revenge personally, because there was uh, there were some reports about how they were concerned uh, about remaining anonymous. At least some of them, you know, didn't want. I mean, so these days when there's a high-profile trial, the first thing that a lot of jurors want to do is write a book about it. <laughs> Their experience on the Scott Peterson jury and so on, but um, but some in this case, a lot of the jurors um, wanted to r- remain anonymous, and uh, because of whatever you know they would, they, whatever they feared might befall them or people they cared about. Um, what else was going on? You know the. The whole question of his sanity was a big issue. Um, his getting on the stand and sort of in a grandiose way talking about how he was supposed to be on the fifth plane that was supposed to go into the White House, according to him. And um, apparently a, a number of jurors did not believe that but um, and perhaps believed that he was crazy that that was why he was saying it um, that he you know wanted to be put to death as he said he um, you know people thought some people thought that he wanted to be a martyr have his 72 virgins after he would be killed but this whole issue of um, the sanity of Musawi really bothered me because um, <laughs> there were some it was brought up by some interviews with his family members um, that uh, apparently his father was diagnosed. This was, um, I believe that they were all, they're Moroccan, but they were in France. And his father was supposedly diagnosed as manic depressive, 
one sister was diagnosed as being schizophrenic and the other sister as psychotic with schizophrenic tendencies. Now, manic depressive illness and schizophrenia are psychotic illnesses uh, that do have a genetic component. That is to say that if there is, um, you know, when you're making a diagnosis of someone, you always ask whether there's mental illness in the family and what these other people were diagnosed as. The only problem is that you can't always rely upon um, what these other people were diagnosed as because you don't know how well they were evaluated. Uh, you know, they, it, it happens that people can get misdiagnosed. And in fact, it is very unlikely to have both manic depressive illness and schizophrenia in the same family. I mean, unless, um, for, for Masawi, unless, well, but that couldn't, well, unless his mother would have been, um, schizophrenic and his father was manic depressive, then yes, they could have created offspring that had some kind of combination of um, schizophrenia and manic depressive illness. There's also the possibility of, of a schizoaffective schizophrenia, which is kind of a middle ground, a combination of manic depressive illness and schizophrenia. So these, these diagnoses were just tossed around in his case as if they were absolutely accurate, when in fact um, I don't think that the accuracy was uh, confirmed in terms of who the psychiatrists were, who made those diagnoses, what they did to make the diagnoses, um, and all of that. And and it, it just does not seem likely that there would, as I said, be two different kinds of psychotic illnesses in his family. Of course, it was interesting because his mother was di- was diagnosed. Yeah, his mother was interviewed. Um, while the as the trial was closing and she was on her way to um, to America uh, towards the end of the trial, and at least this is what the reports say that they um, she seemed rather bothered that she had to sort of make the trip and be interviewed and you know this whole process was just kind of a bother for her, and I must say. Um, that does raise, raise flags as a psychiatrist that if your own mother uh, finds it too much trouble to come to uh, wherever it is that you're being tried and you could receive a, a sentence of execution, then obviously that shows that you did not have very good mothering when you were growing up. And it's kind of sad. I mean, I do agree with um, some of the evidence that was presented, you know, that he was this sweet, chubby little boy uh, who smiled all the time, had a twinkle in his eye when he was growing up, and then um, he changed because of his father's abuse. Now, that's totally believable. That does not make him psychotic, however, um, and would not make him not guilty by reason of insanity or anything like that. Uh, My diagnosis of him is that he's crazy like a fox. Now, that's not a DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, diagnosis, but when he was up there talking about how he wants to be a martyr and wants uh, to be found, to, to be given a death sentence, really what he was doing was playing the jury. And, um, you know, it's like, uh, don't throw me into the briar patch, when really this is what he wanted. In other words, he was telling them that it was sort of the reverse. He was telling them that, that he wanted to uh, receive a death sentence, but in fact he was actually trying to convince them to not give it to him. I mean, although he might well have been ambivalent himself since um, he might have believed all of that uh, stuff, 
about uh, becoming a martyr and getting 72 virgins. But at this point, now that um, that he was not given a death sentence, and he's saying now that he was surprised that he got such a fair trial in America, and I must say that this this is good PR for America for all the um, people who were looking on and didn't really expect Masawi to get this kind of verdict. I think a lot of people um, who sympathized with him, uh, other terrorists, thought that, of course, he was going to be put to death because, you know, we were just looking for a scapegoat. So this is really kind of a, a roar shark and a lot of interesting aspects to this ta- case. And I think one time when the justice system did do a good job. We'll be back. We'll talk more about Masawi and other things in the news. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking about the world according to Dr. Carol, so stay tuned. The powerhouse of Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Once upon a time, there lived three energy hogs. Now, an energy hog is what you have when humans waste energy. One day, the three energy hogs set out to find themselves a cottage. Let's look for leaky windows, said the first energy hog, for he knew that would waste energy. Let's look for leaky doors, said the second. Let's look for a swing set, said the third, for he had more blubber than brains. So they set off down the road. Presently, they came upon a tiny cottage where dwelled a clever girl named Dreadylocks. I hope it has leaky windows, cried the first energy hog. I hope it has leaky doors cried the second. I hope there's the bathroom, cried the third, for only his brains were smaller than his bladder. But Dreadilocks liked playing cool games at energyhog.org. And from energyhog.org, she learned how to use energy wisely. So the three energy hogs were forced to look elsewhere to waste energy and had to use the disgusting restroom at the gas station down the road. And the moral of the story is, to use energy wisely, log on to energyhog.org or waste not, hog not. This public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you're listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkgaard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkgaard every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time. Invoke thought, feeling, and inspiration into your life right here on voiceamerica.com. Expand love and light in the universe. Tune into Miracles Happen, Dreams Do Come True with Iris Jackson every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Each week, Iris and her guests empower, encourage, affirm, acknowledge, and remind us of who we really are, providing tools and processes to fulfill our destiny passionately, victoriously, and joyously. Miracles Happen, Dreams Do Come True is under the guidance and direction of our beloved I Am Presence, the seven mighty Elohim, the ascended masters, and the legions of light, and is given with fervent and heartfelt wishes that all of your dreams come true and are a thousand times more wonderful than you ever dreamed possible. Education, health care, environmental protection, the war in Iraq, taxes, poverty, abortion, the economy, crime, social security, it's all around us. What are the key issues? How does it affect you? Whether you stand to the left of the political aisle or to the right, Make Your Point with Melanie Brenner is your platform for straight political talk without an agenda. Melanie, one of the top Democratic strategic communications experts in the country, and her guests 
political staffers, and consultants behind the elected officials, as well as arts and entertainment icons, discuss the issues relevant to our day-to-day lives. Make Your Point with Melanie Brenner, broadcast each Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Channel. Don't just sit there. Make Your Point. The powerhouse of Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at one 866 472-5788. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today I'm putting various news events on the couch, uh, starting off with Masawi, who's in the news. You know, he's probably going to be in the news um, again because even though the judge has uh, just turned down his... Um, appeals to have a retrial and now try it again where he says he's not guilty. Um, this, in fact, can, the judge's decision, her denial, can be appealed. And um, and there is a possibility, and I hope that this doesn't happen, but there's a possibility that because the prosecutors had wanted to um, get the uh, death sentence for him, that they could do it again and spend millions more um, actually, it really is, in a lot of ways, more of a punishment. I mean, it, it, this goes to what you what you believe happens to you after you die. But if you don't believe that you that uh, that at least if Masawi doesn't believe that he gets uh, becomes a martyr and gets seventy two virgins, then um, you know it really might be more of a punishment for him to live uh, the rest of his life in. Uh, Essentially, being in a cell where he's out of contact with the outside world, um, not able to spout off and uh, give his political and religious ideas, um, and being out of his cell one hour a day. Um, so, really, that is a kind of um, hell. You know that that could well be um, worse than than the death sentence as a punishment. So, um, so we, in any case, he certainly is managing to stay in the news. I was talking before the break about his mental state, and um, one of the things that uh, concerned me was that if this whole idea that um, be, if someone wants to be a terrorist or to uh, go on a suicide mission, because there is so much denial in America today, in terms of the real danger of terrorism that still exists, so much denial that um, there is still this danger, um, people, there's a tendency for the jurors and for a lot of people to want to think that someone has to be psychotic, has to be schizophrenic or manic depressive in order to think like that. And there's, there's a real danger. Um, the madness of terrorists, is not based, I mean, that isn't to say that there aren't some terrorists who are also psychotic, but you do not have to be psychotic to um, to to be brought up um, and brainwashed into believing the, the things that terrorists are, are led to believe in terms of uh, then becoming suicide bombers. Um, and, you know, that's something that really has to be, has to be confronted. 
um, here. You know, you have to confront your own thoughts of, of this. Um, now, it is true that when someone has an, a terribly abusive family, in this case an abusive father, um, it does make you enraged as a child. It fills you with rage. Any child who's, I mean, having nothing to do with terrorism, any child who is um, physically or sexually um, abused does become filled with rage and wants to get revenge on somebody. And since they're not, as little children, able to get revenge generally on their parent, who's generally the abusive one, um, they then grow up to be ripe to turn that rage towards something else, towards taking revenge on something else. And this certainly made Misawi more easily malleable by uh, terrorist leaders who wanted him to carry out whatever it is that they wanted him to carry out because, indeed, um, taking out this revenge on you know the people involved in his mission would be a substitute for the person he really wanted to take it out on, which was his father. Now, let me um, bring this home a little bit um, to something that perhaps can be easily, more easily um, understood, and that is um, yesterday I actually spent time evaluating a family. Uh, there's a case, and I can't, of course, at this point, um, tell you the name of it, but this might uh, become pu- public at some later time. But there's a case of a teenage uh, man who uh, murdered someone, and um, it, he came from a background where his father was incredibly violent throughout his life and filled him with rage. And um, what he did was because he had a hard time making friends and, and socializing, he spent a lot of hours playing video games. And um, if you've been listening to this show, you know that that's sort of my major pet peeve against violent media, particularly video games, because of how case after case after case um, there is of copycat violence and people finding a storyline for their rage um, in the storyline of the video games. And, uh, in fact, you know, one just just came under my nose (laughs) yesterday. I mean, I wasn't expecting this, but I certainly do ask the questions whenever there's a criminal case, what kinds of video games, you know, does the person play video games, what kind of video games. And, um, And lo and behold... Um, there were video games uh, that that this young man who had um, who is accused um, of killing someone he hasn't been found guilty he's just he's just alleged to have killed someone at this point um, but indeed uh, he did play video games lots of video games and including video games. I I kept asking um, his family members who I was interviewing separately originally and uh, asking them, you know, does he play video games? What video games does he play? And I was compiling a list of what each family member said were his favorite video games. And um, interestingly enough, uh, well, I kept asking, was there any video game where he used a bat, a baseball bat, to hurt someone? 
And um, no, no, they all said no. <laughs> and then finally, at the end, uh, because I, I, that's how this crime had been carried out, and at the end, um, it turned out that even though he didn't have games that had people killing with baseball bats, he had a friend who he used to play video games with who indeed had Grand Theft Auto. And I've talked about that on this show before, which is um, perhaps the most uh, violent game uh, or the game who has that has spawned the most copycat incidents with all kinds of weapons on the game that people could use to uh, to injure people, can, can copy and, and injure people in real life. And um, indeed, you know, there are baseball bats. And there's also another twist, another one of his favorite games was um, Zelda. And uh, that's kind of an older game, but in that... The person, the player, you, if you're playing the game, um, gets to save the princess. The, the point of the game is to save the princess who is with an ogre-type man, a bad guy. And uh, indeed, that played right into some of the elements of this case, and that was what he was trying to do. And, it, and part of it had to do with how he wasn't able to protect his mother from... Uh, domestic violence. Not only was his father physically abusive to him and his uh, siblings, but his father was also incredibly violent towards his mother. And he saw and heard some of that violence. And oftentimes, uh, for children, even if they are not themselves a victim of, of physical violence, but they see the father... Um, it can be the mother towards the father, but it's generally the father towards the mother being violent. That, too, fills them with rage and fills them with a sense of impotence that they can't protect their mother against their father because they're only little kids at the time. And that rage, just like Musawi, um, you know, found a channel for that rage or terrorist leaders found him to channel that rage into uh, a violent act or, or send him on that path. Um, these playing video games with the stories, story, revenge stories, or rescuing a damsel in distress stories, depending upon what your personal um, childhood was like, really can set people on the road towards acting out that violence that's just been bubbling inside them uh, throughout their life since their childhood. And this, these kinds of either bad people or Bad video games, um, you know, giving bad messages, violent messages, um, can be sort of the, the final push to get people to, to act out the violence that has been bubbling up inside of them um, for years. And it's really very tragic in whatever case um, it is, whether it's Masawi, who was on a path to, uh, to carry out some terrorist act, or uh, the boy next door, the teenage boy next door, who's on a path because of um, being infused by years of of domestic violence, watching that, years of um, abuse, and then years of playing video games that tell him what to do. When we come back, we'll look at more things in the news. Um, this is the world. According to Dr. Carol, you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch on VoiceAmerica.com, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. 
bringing you around the world right from your desktop. VoiceAmerica.com Hello, this is Rory Garay, President of Greyhound Pets of America and host of Greyhounds Made Great Pets on Voice America. Join me every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern for an insightful and enjoyable talk about one of man's best friends, the Greyhound. Learn about the history of the Greyhound, discuss proper obedience and training techniques, and find out more about the Greyhound racing industry and what they are doing to help the adoption effort of the former race dogs. If you own a Greyhound or just love dogs like I do, join me for Greyhounds Make Great Pets every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Go beyond success and discover a deeper meaning to life. Join host Jeffrey Gitterman and his guests, the premier thought leaders in business, politics, science, spirituality, and culture, who have reached the pinnacle of financial and professional attainment in their fields, only to discover a profound lack of fulfillment with what our culture defines as success. So won't you tune in every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time to Jeffrey Gitterman and Beyond Success, redefining the meaning of prosperity, right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. This week on Slice of Sci-Fi with Michael and Evo, our guest is Jamie Bamber. You'll know him from Battlestar Galactica. He plays Leah Dama. We talk about Battlestar Galactica and get a look inside of Jamie's life. Of course, we'll cover all the sci-fi news for the week as usual. That's Slice of Sci-Fi with Michael and Evo. Bringing you around the world, right from your desktop. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Yes, welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're talking about the world according to Dr. Carroll. We've been talking about Masawi and his uh, being in the news again today, wanting a retrial and or a new trial to try it again. We're pleading not guilty this time. After all, if he was able to get life in prison, maybe he could do better, he thinks, the next time around, even better, which, of course, is unlikely. Um, I was talking also before the break about uh, a case that I'm working on, murder case, um, and that kind of, I want to segue from that into um, and another one of my sort of pet <laughs> topics that kind of boggles my mind every time I see it happening again, because, I don't know, I, I would think that today with so much information about mental illness, um, more anyway than there was 5, 10, 15 years ago, that people should be a little bit more aware, but so many people still miss um, these, particularly in their children and in their teenagers, uh, the, si- the warning signs of mental illness. Now, in this teenage boy that I was talking about, who's I'm e- evaluating for um, uh, a murder trial that he's facing, and when I would ask the family members about, um, you know, to tell me about him and to uh, were there any signs that you know that he was having any problems and um, of course, it turned out that he that he had seizures, which you know pri- might well have been from the violent abuse that he suffered from his father, all of the head injuries. Um, but 
but and and <laughs> that was never quite followed up on in terms of uh, continuing to make sure he was taking his medicine and all of that. But I'm talking more about psychological problems. You know, um, well, yes, yes, he was depressed for years, and well, yes, he didn't really have any friends, and yes, he really hadn't had a real girlfriend by then, and well, yeah, I guess he did talk to himself, and uh, well, he did like to walk a lot. Um, he kept walking, and, and yeah, he used to walk so much that that his um, feet would hurt, and uh, I mean. <laughs> Not that walking a lot, <laughs> we should all walk more. Not that that per se is a sign of mental illness. But um, but connect, part of why he was walking a lot, like at school, was because he didn't fit in anywhere. And he kept walking around because um, he was just totally uncomfortable being there. So, um, you know, and there were some other signs. And, uh, you know, in so many cases probably with Masawi as well, for that matter. Um, in so many cases, horrible events, whether it's, you know, committing violence against somebody else or um, uh, getting into drug abuse and, and getting into a car accident and killing yourself or somebody else, I mean, unintentionally, or just all kinds of really tragic outcomes can be avoided by people looking out for each other, and being aware of um, when someone is seeming very depressed and continuing to seem depressed, and I mean, it isn't just sort of a passing sad mood that day, but sort of they go on for a week and they look down, um, you, it's, it really behooves you, whoever this is, I mean, certainly if it's your child or your teenager, but even if it's a coworker or a friend, it behooves you to, in a nice way, suggest to the person that um, perhaps they should get some professional help or you could, you know, depending upon who it is and what your relationship is, you can say something. I mean, of course, you know, you, <laughs> I know some of you are thinking, yeah, right, I'm going to go up to my coworker and tell them they're nuts and they should go see a psychiatrist. I mean, obviously this needs to be done tactfully, but you can say, uh, if you know what's bothering them, you can say, um, you know, yes, I had a, a very um, bad end to a relationship myself, and I was depressed, and, and um, I sought treatment, and, you know, that helped me. And it's not just a matter of going to, like, a GP, you know, your, your regular family doctor and getting some happy pills, because um, if you need any kind of psychiatric medication, antidepressant or whatever, um, that should be given to you by a psychiatrist, not from someone who hasn't spent four years getting specialty training in psychiatry. And, of course, also you need psychotherapy, preferably from a psychiatrist, the um, same psychiatrist if you need medication. Um, but but there are ways of, of of saying something like, you know, I've been noticing you coming in here and looking really down for like the past week or two. Um, is there, do you want to talk about something that's bothering you or, um, you know, perhaps um, before before your work starts suffering more, <laughs> um, you might want to get some help. You know, whatever you can come up with to um, to think of the best way of, of approaching it or your friend if it's a close friend I mean you know you certainly you can say I, I don't want to 
I don't want to um, hurt your feelings or anything, but I'm concerned about you. That's the message, whoever it is. I'm concerned about you. You're not saying it to put them down or to make them uh, defensive or to tell them that you think they're crazy, but whatever it is that that seems to be a warning sign, um, that is being a real friend to sort of stop things in its tracks. Um, this also, this week, um, you know, another segue, this is kind of making me think of, this radio interview that I heard um, about MySpace, you know, now there's kind of um, some kind of kind of getting some uh, dangerous things happening in MySpace. Um, I mean, I don't want to not super dangerous, but things you certainly have to look out for. Um, and in fact, they hired someone uh, to uh, to sort of try to make sure that that um, to try to supervise what's going on, and particularly to make sure that uh, people. Uh, adults aren't picking up underage children uh, to, for mainly for sexual exploitation. Um, but this mother was being interviewed uh, about MySpace, and she had a teenage daughter who was putting up pictures of herself. Apparently, she and her friends went to a lingerie store and uh, took pictures of each other. And I don't know about the other girls, but this girl put her pictures up on MySpace. And some mother, I believe, of one of the other girls, uh, one of the, this one of this girl's friends, told their mother, who then told the mother of this girl. And she went on MySpace, and yes, lo and behold, there was her teenage daughter in compromising photos of herself in lingerie. And so, what did the mother do? She talked to the daughter and told the daughter that she didn't want her to do that, and the daughter took the photos down, only to put the photos back up um, shortly thereafter when she thought the mother wasn't looking. Now, this mother sort of had no clue, and I'm not, I'm not sort of saying that this mother, that this daughter, this teenage girl was psychotic. Um, or had a severe mental problem, but I'm also not saying that you have to wait until someone is psychotic to get them professional help. Um, but instead of looking at what might be motivating the daughter to have this need to have the world see her in lingerie, you know, obviously this was a girl who needed male attention. She needed some kind of, she was looking for some kind of positive feedback like, oh, you're sexy or, um, you know, you, you, you're really a hot chick or whatever she hoped that people would write back to her. That's what she was looking for was her own insecurity. And then the mother had said something that kind of um, led one to believe that perhaps the daughter, she was divorced from the daughter's father and, and there wasn't a man in the house. And, you know, so it all kind of fit together that the daughter wasn't feeling that she was getting enough male attention from a father figure um, and took out this need, you know, on MySpace, used MySpace to try to get this kind of male attention. And, of course, she would have gotten, you know, older male attention, father figure type male attention from these photos, regardless of whoever else um, sent her emails. So instead of looking at all of that, the mother was talking about this, and I guess what drove me really, uh, <laughs> you know, up the wall listening to this was that the hosts of the news program didn't question it either. Um, but she was just going on about how, well, she doesn't really want to uh, go be too harsh on her daughter and, 
all of that, instead of getting to the real issue as to why the daughter had this need and what she could do about that. And yes, maybe the daughter did need to go to therapy um, to talk about this so that she didn't act out this need in some way in real life, such as being exploited by the kind of uh, adults that troll MySpace looking for vulnerable teenagers um, to exploit because that's the road that this girl was going down, and yet the mother was in total denial that uh, there was any significance to this other than her daughter you know, being um, naughty <laughs> uh, by disobeying her and putting the photos back up once she told her to take them down. These are the kinds of things that we have to open our eyes to. Um, it, it's this, this whole thing, we're just way too uh, ready to accept people's denial, whether it's about teenage girls in my space or whether it's about what people believe about terrorism and 9-11, Musawi, and the movie uh, Flight 93 was another example because, ironically, that movie came out right around the time that the Musawi trial was coming to a close. And what do we hear? We... (laughs) People in New York, where it first opened in the film festival, um, some people were up in arms. They didn't want to see that movie. In fact, uh, not even the movie, they were upset about the trailer that came on before the movie actually started showing. They didn't want to see it, even though Flight 93 uh, was a story of heroism. You know, I mean, of course, it's a tragedy, and of course the people died, but it was also a story of heroism, and that particular movie has gotten rave reviews from critics. It was done very compassionately, as accurately as possible. A lot of time and work went into it to get it to be as accurate as possible, reconstructing it from all the information that they had, um, doing it in conjunction with a lot of the relatives uh, of, of people who died on that plane. And yet here, were people in movie theaters, you know, not everybody, but a lot of people, just want didn't want to see it. It's the same thing. It's just like the teenage girl. They don't. The mother didn't want to see it. That that was really what was underneath her girl, her daughter putting up these photos. The family of of the teenage boy that I was just talking about with the violent video games. They didn't want to see how the violent video games could be bad for him, and they didn't want to see that his signs of um, psychiatric disorder, some of which I've described, uh, meant something serious that they should get help for. And of course, um, and of course, Massawi and terrorism and all of that. I mean, it's just, we really, we, we can't keep hiding from some of these facts of life. We really have to start confronting them. And I have to confront the fact that I have to take a break now. <laughs> You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We've been talking today about the world according to Dr. Carol, so stay tuned. Unlimited talk at your fingertips, voiceamerica.com. West Coast Business Review and host Amy Campbell presents Show Me the Business. Each week, you'll hear exciting guests give you vital information on advancing your business and career. Learn how others have built their empires, from best-selling authors to renowned entertainers. Listen every Tuesday, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific time on voiceamericaradio.com. Visit our website at www.westcoastbusinessreview.com. West Coast Business Review's Show Me the Business, connecting you to the business world. 
World-renowned cosmetic surgeon and scientist, Dr. Andrew G. Berman, hosts Beauty in America, broadcasting every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America channel. What is beauty? How is it viewed in a cross-cultural context? And what is the role of plastic surgery in society, careers, and life? Expert guests join Dr. Berman to discuss historic and current concepts of beauty and plastic surgery, as well as trends, advances, and gimmicks. Beauty in America with Dr. Andrew G. Berman finds out what is real and what is hype right here on the Voice America channel, Fridays at 2 p.m. The results indicate your child has neuroblastoma. There's evidence of metastasis. We need to schedule a bone we'll to perform a surgery. After you hear your child has cancer, chances are you don't hear anything else. CureSearch.org connects you to the most comprehensive research and advice on childhood cancer and to other families who know exactly what you're going through. CureSearch.org. You're not as alone as you feel. Brought to you by CureSearch and the Ad Council. The powerhouse of Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking about uh, the world according to Dr. Carol today, some of the things that I've been sort of saving up to rant about because um, they all sort of relate to this same idea that uh, we need to be willing to open up our eyes and, and confront some of the things in our life, whether they are in our own personal life, such as family members having warning signs of needing professional help or uh, signs of things going on in the world, such as uh, the fact that the threat of terrorism is not over, even though 9/11 is. Um, we have another. Uh, we have another. Um, what? Uh, well, movie form tonight that is coming into our consciousness. Or I suggest that you don't necessarily watch this, really, unless it is to. Uh, to examine and analyze what I'm about to tell you, but there's going to be a movie on tonight um, called Fatal Contact, Bird Flu in America. And I don't know if you've been hearing about this or reading reviews about this. All the reviews are terrible. But what I'm concerned about is with this whole um, uh, countdown to bird flu, I mean, every day you can't turn on the television or the or the uh, radio or... Um, or the internet, <laughs> or uh, the newspaper, and uh, not hear something about bird flu. And I mean, I'm certainly not going to say that this isn't a potential danger. Um, it hasn't mutated yet. It's not coming to the uh, <laughs> to the tree nearest you <laughs> uh, yet. <laughs> um, and we don't know whether it ever will. Which, um, and certainly, yes, we should be prepared, just like we should be prepared for terrorism. But, but it, it, the fact that there has been all this hype, uh, more hype about bird flu lately, quite frankly, than about terrorism, um, the fact that there's all this hype about it, and particularly with the report that the government released recently uh, about how to prepare for bird flu or what it's going to be like, you know, which strangely enough coincides with this movie um, coming on that is that is not necessarily what it's going to be like. In fact, 
the um, people who are experts in the field of infectious disease, and particularly bird flu, uh, who have been who have seen this movie, um, have have already said that it is not realistic. That there are a lot of things that are not real um, that wouldn't happen that way in real life, and um, all this is going to do is put some people into a panic. And, you know, right now there's no reason to panic. Um, And it makes me think about how, particularly with the timing of all of this, you know, the fact that Bush is is, uh, losing more and more support uh, because of the war and because of, you know, now um, the problem with Iran as well that is uh, creeping up. We've already talked about that on this show um, with someone who gave us a real bird's-eye view into what was going on in the Middle East. Uh, If you haven't listened to that show, I suggest you go into the archives for it. Um, But the fact that this is kind of, that there there seems to be this this desire to stir up a panic about bird flu makes me feel that this is a a smokescreen so that we won't really be... uh, being concerned enough about things that we should be concerned enough about. And uh, instead, I mean, it's almost like, you know, it's kind of like a, a surreal, like a comic strip. Um, I know, let's get them all in a tizzy about bird flu, you know, something that someone sort of could have invented. I'm not saying that bird flu, I'm not saying that it is invented. <laughs> but I'm just saying that it's, it's, you know, it's getting to that kind of proportion, Um to sort of craziness where where we're we're worried more about or we will be perhaps or some people will be after seeing this movie about or some people are already more concerned about bird flu than about uh, some of the other things that we need to be more concerned about some of which I've talked about during this show so far um, but I, I think we also need to be prepared for terrorism a lot more than we do or in some ways a lot of it is, is similar uh, in terms of being able to stay in your house, uh, shelter in place. You know, it's, it's some of the things that you would do would be quite similar because the main um, thrust of a, a if you if we're attacked by terrorists or attacked by birds, the idea is that we may need to be on our own um, for some indefinite period of time. So... So, you know, of course it's always good to be prepared. It's just not good to be panic-stricken. And I'm putting this out here now um, so that if you do watch the movie tonight on television, um, please be aware of all of this. A lot of the experts say that it is not accurate, number one. And number two, ask yourself, is this a smokescreen that um, is making that the government would like us to concentrate on instead of how many casualties there are every day in Iraq? So um, just be be prepared with all of that. Um, you know, similarly, or, or, or you know, on the other hand, it's it's sort of a paradoxical situation. Um, the headlines today are: despite opposition, Bush backs Hayden as CIA chief. Now, there's something to be concerned about: um, the fact that one uh, person in power after another seems to be leaving under sort of clouded circumstances, whether it was the press secretary or whether it was, I mean, now it's the CIA chief. Um, there have been numerous people, I mean, I'm, you know, certainly you've been noticing over the past six months in particular, or the past, it's been going on for quite a while now, actually, over the past year, 
there's been sort of an increase um, in the number of people, certainly than you've ever heard before or than I remember before in other administrations where people are quitting, being fired, um, resigning, you know, we never <laughs> will know when their book comes out um, what actually happened, but until then it's all pretty cloudy. And that in itself is something that I think we do need to be more concerned about than bird flu. Um, and I'm not saying whether Hayden, I don't have an opinion just now about whether Hayden would be good or not, but what I'm saying, I do have an opinion on the fact that, number one, it's rather disconcerting when we see that the people who are minding our store, you know, supposed to be taking care of us, so to speak, um, are keep leaving <laughs> or keep being thrown out. Uh, because, as I'm sure you know, uh, in whatever situation, the PTA president or a business or uh, anything, when there's a turnover, I mean, sometimes it can be good if, if, if there are problems. Um, in the organization, but sometimes there is always a period of of adjustment, and that kind of means a lag time. And lag time in the CIA, you know, is <laughs> I don't know. Um, seems to me that that's not a good idea. Uh, not that there aren't people who are continuing to do their job, but always when it is new, when there's a, a change of the leader, certainly it, it really does have some negative consequences for a while. It could be better in the end. But um, it does make us feel less safe, and it is something that we should be really more concerned about than bird flu. And I guess um, sort of the bottom line to all of this is that uh, we just like we need to shelter in place or be prepared to shelter in place whether we're attacked by terrorists or birds, um, we need to sort of learn more self-reliance in general in life because... Um, because of all of these things that assail our personal world, whether it's people on the Internet exploiting teenagers or mental illness that needs to be sort of nipped in the bud or violent video games or, you know, all of these things. There are all of these things out there. Just pick up the newspaper and you'll have um, more things that... that uh, can concern you then then you want to then you want to look at which is kind of the problem so you sort of have to pick <laughs> you sort of have to give enough attention basically to your own um, health and the health of your family and people you care about the mental health physical health and to just sort of uh, stop being blind to what is out there even though it is painful to look at it is scary to look at not not panic worthy however there is nothing that is out there that is panic worthy even bird flu especially bird flu but there is enough to um, to get us to sort of lift our heads up out of the sand and be more aware and to take action um, for the things that we want to promote uh, the you know the the causes that we believe in like the environment for example um, and to be against the things that we think are dangerous for ourselves, for our family, for our country. And we really need to be out there and being more active so that we can feel more in control. The only way to be more in control of your environment is to take action. And first you need to find out more about it, and then you can take informed action. But the more you spend time burying your head in the sand, um, the more risk you're putting yourself and people you care about at. Because by the time you pick your your head up, um, you know it might well be too late to do something that could 
could have been nipped in the bud if you had paid attention to it beforehand. So there are warning signs of mental illness. There are warning signs of things not being right politically, um, things going on in the world all around us, and we need to look at them and do something about them. And uh, I, next week, will... Um, actually, I'm going to con next week, so I will not be with you. I will pick out a uh, favorite to replay for you, so I do hope you'll listen. And I will be joining you the week after, live, again. And um, I, I'm going to the Con Film Festival, actually, and I'll tell you more about it when I come back. I'll give you a bird's-eye view of the Con Film Festival. So till then, this is Dr. Carol Lieberman, your psychiatrist host. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch on voiceamerica.com. And come back next week. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 